The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we welcome Alan Briskin. Alan is a multi-talented individual um, and a nice friend. He is an award-winning author, consultant, and artist. He's a pioneer in the field of organizational learning, co-founder of the Collective Wisdom Initiative, and has written several books just a few, to name a few, The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace, Bringing Your Soul to Work, Daily Miracles, and his most recent, The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. Alan, welcome to Leading Conversations. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to be talking to you, Cheryl. So nice to hear your voice. So tell us, where are you today? I'm in Oakland, California. And is it a pretty sunny day there? It's a very pretty sunny day, and I'm looking out on some uh, green and uh, a little bit of road. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Oakland has been very fortunate, uh, particularly in regard to the rain on the East Coast and the heat in in Oregon. We've had a pretty moderate uh, time temperature-wise, and it's actually been quite enjoyable. Quite nice. It's the summertime on the West Coast. Um, is a delightful place to be. So today we're going to talk about collective wisdom and you and how you got into all this and, you know, just what this movement is about. So, Alan, I, I've um, been intrigued as I've learned more about your history and kind of where you've come from, all of the significant events, all of, of the significant thinking you've brought forward, the difference that you've made in many lives. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you even got connected to the idea of collective? Well, I think, you know, when, the, when I think of the question about how my own life was an initiation for this kind of work, hmm. uh, it brings me to, you know, growing up in New York, born in New York City. Both my parents were born in Eastern Europe in small little towns that uh, w- would have been called shtetls, uh, Jewish Jewish towns, uh, uh, probably best known in the United States through the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Oh. And uh, w- without being conscious of it as a child growing up, I really grew up between two worlds, the world of this more traditional shtetl uh, community 
and the world of New York City in the 50s and 60s and baseball, probably best uh, symbolized by my uh, rebellion at the time of my bar mitzvah that uh, rather than going to synagogue, I wanted to play baseball. And uh, the compromise was that I could wear my baseball uniform under my Sabbath suit uh-huh. I, uh, because we were traditional and uh, didn't, were not allowed to ride in the car. Uh. I uh, negotiated that I could leave uh, the Sabbath services a little early, ran home, uh, ripping off my, uh, my Sabbath suit, and underneath was my uniform, my baseball uniform, grabbed a glove and continued running to get to the game on time. Ah, you were, uh, you were I, quite determined. I was quite determined, and it, uh, I think, uh, made me aware of, of how, one, how much many of us live in different worlds, mm-hmm. and we're only allowed to express mm-hmm. uh, the acceptable world to others. Mm-hmm. And the other is that we end up having to wear these different uniforms in life, and uh, this was a chance for me to look back and to say, you know, there's uniforms underneath uniforms, and beneath that there is something about the essence of who we are. Mm. And so that that notion that there was a distinctiveness about each individual, and yet we had to contend with the world, the collective that we were part of, that gave us our uniforms, that gave us our identity in many ways, and... Uh, there was this question that I think has been a continual source of inquiry for me mm-hmm. of how do we find our distinctiveness in groups mm-hmm. uh, and how can we be in relationship to others in ways that are worthwhile and healthy uh, because so much of group life is not healthy and so much of it does restrict uh, the uniqueness of each individual. Mm. So you're talking about the need to conform and... The need to conform uh, and to really sort of put on a dress that that keeps us safe because if we look too different to others, we can be in danger. And the first place I got to really test these ideas was in the initial group home uh, movement in Vermont in the early 70s. And I was involved with some of the founders of that uh, movement it was an alternative to the reform school. The, the, the children who came to us were wards of the state, so either they could not be, they were not with their, their own families, they could not be in foster homes. There was too many different kinds of psychological and behavioral problems. And uh, the only place for them would have been a, a prison-like reform school. Okay. And we created a, an alternative um, and had to then prove that it could work. And we eventually became the model for the state of Vermont in terms of, uh, of what became a group home movement. But the premise of that was that the community itself could be the intervention. Mm. That uh, if we found a way that honored the distinctiveness of each of these uh, children, uh, recognized what they struggled with, offered them the boundaries and support that helped them uh, function and relate to, to each other and to us, that that was the therapeutic intervention. And back then there was language like milieu therapy. The very milieu uh, was the source of how people could find themselves. Uh, 
so those early those early experiences really shaped uh, not just a romanticism of the group, but a desire for both finding what is distinctive within each person and allowing a healthy relationship to others. Mm. And that really was your own journey for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that, again, you know, when I look back at how my life was an initiation for the work that I do, that uh, I, I grew up marginal to all the worlds I was part of. I was marginal to the Orthodox Jewish traditional community. Mm-hmm. I was not really of it. Um, but I was also in some ways marginal to the modern American, uh, you know, play baseball and have a good time. That was, you know, I, I was, I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. My parents had come from uh, towns that had been uh, um, exterminated. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, my friends' fathers still had the concentration camp uh, numbers uh, that was tattooed into their arms. Uh, there was no way to escape that the world could be a very dangerous place. Mm. And uh, the idea of uh, the idyllic image of America as a as a safe haven was always mitigated by that awareness of of the danger of the larger society. And so uh, it makes me wonder if if there was always this sense that there was danger, and most people retreat into groups for safety. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you? I mean, did you have a safe place? I think that I was fortunate in that I found others to create new kinds of settings. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was still 17 when I left the United States and joined a a group experimenting with creating collectives uh, based on the kibbutz model in Israel. It was not a kibbutz. It was a group of international men and women who were consciously seeking to create a different kind of uh, community experience. so from the very beginnings, my way of, 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 of answering that question, you know, what were my choices, you know, to become an individualist, uh, to, to uh, be in conflict with all groups, or to disappear into a group and, and uh, get my safety from, from being part of an existing group. And I think the alternative was realizing that, uh, that I could that I would be attracted to and could be an attractor for others who were living this question, who wanted to really uh, create new forms. And so that first experience uh, internationally and then the group home movement was exactly the same pattern. It was a group of people who said, uh, I think there's a way we can come together, uh, operate together, which is the root of cooperate mm. uh, that that will be life affirming, mm. and it is an extraordinary thing when you begin to realize that you can be an attractor of others who feel this way, and that you will be attracted to uh, people who are holding this question. Mm-hmm. So I know you work with organizations a lot, and. Um Specifically, you've done a lot of work in healthcare. How do you find the level of fear in the kind of culture 
healthcare culture where, you know, there's a lot of crisis, there's a lot of um, life and death decisions being made. I mean, there's, things are amped up in general in healthcare. And so how do you take this whole philosophy into that world? Well, it, it's a great it's a great question, and and I've worked with many different kinds of organizations. Uh, I, I think that my focus became working with uh, healthcare uh, facilities, medical centers, and individual leaders, both nursing and physician leaders. And uh, it starts again with the premise that in the end, people receive good care because there is. Uh, uh, effective collaboration and cooperation among the different uh, constituencies that make up a medical center. Mm-hmm. So that medicine itself is a collaborative science. You cannot treat people in isolation. You can't treat the liver and forget about the kidney and the kidney right. and forget about the heart. And, and you can't treat organs without remembering that there's a human being in front of you. Mm-hmm. So this was a great kind of animating idea that that here was a place, you know, maybe more than anywhere else, where it was only through collaboration at every level, at the physical or organic level of the body, at the level of the caretakers and how they orchestrate their work together. And yet, as we know, like so many other fields, intense specialization. Uh, A doctor once said, as we were uh, doing a workshop on uh, communication with patients, you know, I went through medical school and I learned how to, to diagnose and I learned how to intervene uh, in diseases, but no one ever told me there was a person that I had to deal with. Mm. And unfortunately, that is often the case, that, that there's a minimizing of the relationship. When I first started working with uh, improved uh, communication between healthcare providers and patients, the, uh, people would ask me this question, who would you rather have, a good doctor or, or someone with a good bedside manner? Mm-hmm. As if you could split those two things apart. Right. And uh, as we began to look more at the research of, of, of care, you know, we began to see that there was clearly not two worlds, but one, that the person who can listen and uh, really hear what the patient is saying has a better chance to get the clinical information to make a better diagnosis. Uh, the physicians that can interact with their team in a surgical suite have a better chance of that patient having a better outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so much of this work is in some ways reminding people what is true at the very core of their work. And one has to create uh, different settings to, to let this come out because, as you say, there's a great deal of... Uh, uh, of fear, there's a great deal of uh, a to-do lists, a survival mentality. I think this is true increasingly in all organizations. It just happens that I work particularly within the healthcare world. And uh, as one nurse leader said, you know, you helped us slow down to go faster. And I think that was a very important point because yeah. you have to act with speed. You have to act with efficiency. Right, right. Uh, but if there's, but but it is a inefficient process if people have not come together to be clear about what tr- they're trying to achieve together. And it occurs to us that that has a, occurs to me that it has a whole lot to do with our intention. 
Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about that when we come back right after this break. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Alan Brisket today, author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. Alan, before we went to break, we were talking about the importance of the importance of systemic thinking, really, and you know how the effect of the collective and the individual. And I mentioned that the power of our intention is vital here. So you have someone who understands that they have to, as you said, act quickly. They have to make decisions. They can't stand around and, you know, think about this all day long. They have actions they have to take. And yet how they come into those actions or how they hold that matters. So is that connected to one's intention? Deeply, and I think it's connected to the power of collective wisdom, that that what what animates the collective and what allows it to be a healthy whole is that individuals and individuals in relationship with each other can hold to certain intentions. Mm. Uh, it may It's the energetic principle that everything else arises from. Mm. So... I might work with a group of people who wanting who want to initiate a new palliative care program, mm-hmm. and the finance people get involved and they try to figure out what uh, level of investment it might be worth to try to figure out what cost savings it may incur. A program manager is trying to determine, you know, how many days a week it needs to operate. Can it operate five days, seven days, from nine to five, 24 hours a day? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the operations person is trying to figure out what classification of people will be needed to staff it, case managers, doctors, nurses, and so on. But But it's only when we begin to have somewhere the leadership who are giving people these marching orders uh, that they have taken the time to be really clear about their intention. Right. What is it that ultimately we want as an outcome of this mm-hmm. program? Mm-hmm. 
in palliative care is a good example because it's a relatively new initiative within healthcare. Right. And it's saying many, many people are just being given treatment for specific uh, disease-oriented uh, procedures. There's just procedures for different disease orientations. Mm-hmm. There's a smaller group who may be part of hospice, but at that point it's clear that there is a number of weeks left for the person's right. life. Right. And yet there are such a critical group of people who are suffering and whose suffering may or may not lead to mortality, uh, who are suffering and may uh, need to cope with that over months or years. Mm-hmm. And so palliation is a language that has emerged about how do we organize, uh, the co- how do we collaborate and, uh, with, with patients who need this type of attention. Right. And this and is really about helping people to uh, empower themselves to advocate for their own care. And it's about developing relationship in the delivery of a service and, yes. and care, right? And that's wonderful because that you're really speaking directly to what is our intention here as opposed to let's have a program or let's have yeah. a big program or let's have a small program. Yeah. It's, yeah. What is the intention of this program? Because that's going to direct us to how to make use of our resources. And while uh, the people and the amount of resources will constantly be in flux, can we hold to what we're trying to create? And this becomes very important because one of the first challenges is the finance people came back and they say we can't determine what the right level of investment is because we can't predict what cost savings will be. And besides that, there's certain uh, uh, classifications of staff that we're not sure which of the division should pay for it. Mm -hmm. And because of, I think, some of these initial ideas about what we were hoping to achieve, when we came to these roadblocks, the people who could get those roadblocks out of the way, work together to get them out of the way. Otherwise, it would have been stopped in its tracks. And so one of the things about intention is uh, the resolve that comes with being really clear about what the intention is. Mm -hmm. And that means a certain quality of inquiry that most of us are not trained to do. So someone might think, well, my intention is to make money, or my intention is to be happy, or my intention is to be honest. And that's great as uh, somehow a beginning part of an inquiry, Mm. but it is certainly not an answer to the question of intention. Intention involves layers of what are we resolved to, um, to see happens in the world. Well, talk Not, more. Talk a little bit more about level of inquiry and those layers, because it seems to me that what you're really looking at is um, not just what are the questions, but what what are the deep meaning? What's the deep meaning that comes out of each question, which then in turn informs what the following question should be. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's wonderful. And, and you, you know, let's just stay with what you've brought forward. That that intention is an invitation, mm. uh, and with that invitation are questions 
and the meaning that lies along with those questions, which then inform the further questions, mm -hmm. all of which informs our actual action in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you also work a great deal with healthcare, and what we know is that one can get caught into being the problem solver. You put right. seven surgeons in your room and you say, we have this problem, and within seconds you'll have seven answers to the problem none of which in isolation will actually address what's going on. Right. But that won't stop everyone from having their own answer. Right, right. So how so do you teach people? How do you teach, let's take that group of seven surgeons as an example. How do you teach them to move through the level of inquiry that you're talking about? There is an investment that has to begin uh, I, I think with the people who are convening that meeting. Uh, so I'm talking in a very practical sense of how to construct an intervention. That uh, in most cases I wouldn't walk in cold to seven people I've never met, sure. all of whom are highly intelligent and completely uh, uh, committed to their point of view. Mm -hmm. But you have to find some way, just like a knotted muscle, to, to, to get some blood flow and mm -hmm. to get some movement. And the way I did this in a specific case involving a chronic pain program is I tried to identify people who were in a position to really help cultivate the intention around the, the, the program that was to be created. Mm -hmm. And, you know, partly what I learned is all of the history that had acted to constrain any movement forward. So part of my work is to help individuals, particularly people in leadership roles, to understand what they're up against. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's, I think, maybe the first basic error that people make. It's like, what's the problem? We'll get in the room, we'll set up some yeah. goals, we'll have an action plan, yeah. and then we'll monitor it. Right. And that, that's a methodology you could use on anything all the time. Unfortunately, it doesn't speak to the collective. It doesn't speak mm -hmm. to what is in each individual system, the different the distinctiveness of the different individuals in that system, mm. some of whom can become, uh, who, are, who are injured in certain ways and are very protective mm. of what they do want and know. And so before you walk into that room with the seven surgeons, it's great to create some allies. It's, right. it's, it's important to have someone who will say, um, what I hope we'll get from this first meeting is, uh, some greater clarity about um, the nature of the problem we're facing rather than an answer. Right, 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 right. So and and uh, amazingly so, when there's someone who has credibility among the people in a group who makes this request, it's often a great relief to the people in the room. Right, right. Well, and that it makes me wonder, too, how... I see sometimes how an individual who has that credibility can say something and it's heard. And another person in the group who doesn't have that same level of credibility could make um, that same comment initially. And it will not be received in the same way. That's right. And so it, it, and that, again, gets back to the issue of relationships and intention. And so then I think about, well, how does that affect the collective? How can the collective move forward in a way that um, is effective if 
there are individuals in the group that either people don't trust or, you know, they're not hearing or not listening to. I mean, how is, how is that possible? Uh, what I love about what, uh, you're, 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 what you're raising is part of my hope with the power of collective wisdom is that people will begin to develop a different way of seeing and in this seeing differently, uh, different thoughts will occur to them and therefore different actions will be taken. Mm. So uh, let me personalize it. I was very early on uh, in developing a communication uh, course for physicians. I was the person I didn't think would be listened to. I was not a physician. Oh, mm-hmm. And it was essential to intervene at the collective level uh, for me to create allies, and I did with uh, two extraordinary uh, doctors, mm-hmm. one a pediatrician, one an internist. And we spent a fair amount of time m- making sure that uh, we were clear about what what we were really offering these physicians, because we knew they would often come in uh, skeptically and in, uh, at the time we did it with a great deal of anger because there was cutbacks in the medical center mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, before they even walked into the room, they had been murmuring about charm school and how useless something like that would be. Oh, yeah. So to think collectively it is to say, what is it that, uh, how can we meet them uh, and who is credible to them? Mm-hmm. So... So my example there is I didn't anticipate that they would give me credibility mm-hmm. regardless of my background, degrees, and so on, um, because I just didn't think I was of their group yet. Uh, and so I needed to create those alliances. Mm-hmm. In other cases, I, I might be the voice of authority, and other people are using me to help give expression right. to certain ideas. Right, right. Uh, but that's how one thinks collectively. Mm-hmm. What is needed mm-hmm. in this situation? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that you, you know, much of my work, I've worked with minority and women, uh, including in prison systems. And I learned a great deal from them in terms of the strategies that they came up with to make things work. Uh, they knew in many cases that you, you, it's not unusual to hear you have to be three times better than the person in the majority culture to get noticed. Not two times, three times better. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, But you also begin to see those who have been successful, that they have figured out how to create uh, alliances that that allow them to be visible in ways they want to be visible in. So uh, the other part of this then is, um, you know, I've seen groups, some highly functional, some not so highly functional, where, um, you know, they are peers, and yet there may not be a good relationship between all of them. Um, And what I think I hear you saying is that um, each person then has a responsibility to the collective to step outside of that um, personal feeling of, I don't trust whomever I'm sitting next to, um, but to step into the larger question of what is needed in this situation. It's, 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 it's wonderful. Again, it's wonderful you're bringing that forward, and in doing that, 
in asking that of oneself, there's a great liberation because groups can be so diminishing and demeaning. Mm -hmm. And if your life is spent trying to figure out how not to feel inferior, uh, you often can't get very far. But if you alter that question and you think, how am I a part of a larger whole? How am I contributing to help us move forward? It allows one not to take it all so personally. Right. And, and uh, th- this may be the great irony of, of collective wisdom, that there is, um, it is so essential that our distinctiveness be honored and we are able to bring the gifts that each of us have. And at the same time, there has to be a certain impersonality about the whole endeavor, that if we personalize our relation to groups, ultimately we either succeed at the expense of others or find ourselves diminished. We have much more to talk about with Alan Briskin when we come right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back. We're speaking with Alan Briskin today. He's our guest on Leading Conversations. He is the author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and The Trap of Collective Folly. Alan, let's talk about collective folly. Explain to us what you mean by that. Part of the the challenge of conceptualizing the book was first trying to grasp what collective wisdom meant aside from it just being a motto or a phrase. And what uh, we realized over time is that the the phrase collective wisdom uh, was not just, uh, collective was not just an adjective, how can we have wisdom in larger groups, Mm. but really a joining of an appreciation of the collective, which is what we've talked about for the first half of the show with an appreciation for wisdom as a idea that exists in all cultures and through time and is about the capacity as individuals and as groups to make sound judgment, Mm. to be able to uh, use multiple intelligences 
intuition as well as empirical data mm. to articulate what it is we know. Uh, so it's often that wisdom is associated by definition with the accumulated philosophical and scientific traditions in the West. Mm. But wisdom has always been distinguished by its reverence for life. Mm. And so collective joined with wisdom seemed like the best way to express the current circumstances we're in. We need to be able to think collectively, understand what it means to, as we been doing in the first half of this conversation to use the collective as our means of relationship but we also have to act wisely because groups can be as we talked about so diminishing they can function at the lowest common denominator they can become mobs and group think mm -hmm. so collective folly was our way of acknowledging that we can't romanticize collective wisdom here are five things and and uh add water and you're yeah, home free. Yeah, yeah. That it's in fact collective wisdom is furthered because we understand that at any given moment we can make decisions that are not sound. We can fool ourselves through confirmation bias. We can split among ourselves and polarize and war against each other. Mm -hmm. We can easily fall into false agreement uh, ignoring the fact that what we're doing has nothing to do with what we said we wanted. So collective folly became uh, our language for talking about the ever-present possibility of groups to not think collectively and to not uh, uh, orient oneself towards sound judgment. I love the way in the book you use short vignettes um, about groups and communities um, to make your point. I love the little story about the Helms and the Helmites. <laughs> it was a wonderful way to show how groups can can fall into folly, so to speak. Yes. Um, so how would you... If you look at what's going on in our society today in the U.S. and the media and how opinions are formed or influenced around politics, um, individuals' reputations, etc., how, how is collective wisdom and collective folly playing out in this? Well, I think it was our belief, the, the authors, we mentioned them, Charles Erickson, and John Ott, and Tom Callanan, who were my, uh, who, who, who were co-authors with me on this mm -hmm. book. I think we came to see that many people would get the book because of its inclusion of collective folly, that, mm. that in some ways, as much as there's a core group of people who are, whose intention is to create wisdom communities, far more people are immersed in the f collective folly aspects of things. Mm -hmm. And even those groups that have wonderful intentions often find themselves caught in the trap of collective folly. So for us, it was essential that we acknowledge that many people's experience is far more toward the collective folly mm -hmm. part of the continuum than their experience of collective wisdom. 
even though I think most of us have had some experience in groups that were life-affirming, that allowed us to get things done better, that the spirit of cooperation was really quite evident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but day-to-day, we are contending with collective folly. And uh, the healthcare discussions now mm-hmm. are really, in some ways, a test of will we be able to cr- make sound judgments? Mm-hmm. Uh, will we have what is typical of, uh, of people's fear of government that will create some type of sausage that will satisfy no one? Mm-hmm. And to what degree will we simply break into warring camps uh, leading to violence? Right. So collective folly is that immediate experience of the larger culture right now. And uh, I'll say it again related to our book, that it's when there is false agreement or extreme forms of polarization that create the conditions for folly to occur. So say more about false agreement. What do you mean by that? Well, false agreement would be that uh, it's easiest to get through legislation that does not address cost containment in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's going to get something. No one will be uh, asked to do anything different. And the, the lack of sound judgment there is that the cost of healthcare continues to escalate for a host of reasons that we need to find ways to address. Uh, one of the great physicians writing about uh, about this uh, gave the metaphor of if you asked a group of plumbers, cabinet makers, and electricians to build you a house based on how many toilets, outlets, and cabinets you had in your home, you would get a house with 20 bathrooms, you know, 100 outlets, uh, you know, cabinets uh, in, in the bedroom and, and the TV room and everywhere else, but not necessarily a house that will stand up five years later. Uh, yet, if if uh, the cabinet makers and electricians and plumbers, if they were given unlimited money, all would agree that they'd be happy to build you a house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, false agreement is 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 any situation in which the lowest common denominator is found, but not necessarily is there the health of the whole that's at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, forced oh. agreement is what we see in authoritarian countries uh, most most explicitly, which is this is the way it's going to be, and anyone who would uh, uh, suggest differently would would put themselves and their family at great risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody, of course, is in agreement. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the one of the, the methodologies for understanding this is is to ask the question, what are people's incentive to agree? If they're agreeing because uh, they have personal financial gain or if they're agreeing because they're fearing for their life, one can very quickly assess that the decisions coming out of those groups are going to be uh, vulnerable to, Mm -hmm. to, uh, to folly. Mm-hmm. And certainly that has been very much the structure of a lot of our legislation, um, has been very much the structure of, um, you know, community agreements. People say, well, it's not okay to speak up, or if I do that, I will be um, viewed as not collaborative. You go inside mm-hmm. organizations and... Yep. 
people say things like, well, I'm trying to be a, quote, a team player, and so they don't have the courage, they don't take on the courage to stand up and say, you know, this, this is crazy, what are we doing, you know? And what, what I think I'm adding to the conversation is that people who are stewards of groups, who are elected officials, who are uh, in managerial positions, supervisory positions, part of the role is to create settings in which there is room for a diversity of perspectives that allow us to get a better decision, not just uh, a chance for people to vent or for people to, to, to let people talk to get their buy-in, but actually settings in which our safety is dependent on on people speaking to the common task. Mm. Let me give you another healthcare example. Mm-hmm. In surgical uh, suites, in surgical uh, rooms now, there's an action called timeout, mm-hmm. which means that before the procedure is done, the physician states the, right. the organ and the side of the body that the work will be done. Right. When this was originally done, and was done for safety purposes, right. they found that without other people speaking, uh, mistakes were still being made. So the surgeon would say, you know, da-da, right side, and then proceed, and it could still be wrong. And so right. then they put a new part of the, perce- of, the, of the safety, is that everyone had to stop what they were doing, right. uh, really pay attention to what was being said, mm-hmm. and confirm out loud that this, in fact, was what they understood the procedure to be. Right. Right. In that setting, uh, to create a highly reliable surgical setting, there has to be ways we insist that people speak to what is to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the danger of either people feeling, well, I didn't want to disagree with the surgeon, I would look bad, or, you know, I was told that if I speak up, I would be punished. Mm-hmm. Uh is directly putting that patient in jeopardy. Right. And as a metaphor, I think that's true in almost all our circumstances in the financial world, in the uh, mechanic, in the in, in industry. That if we are not creating space for people to address their concerns, not just their personal frustrations, but their concerns about the task, then we can't build the collaborative structure, and we're putting that product or service at risk. Well said. We have more to talk about with Alan Briskin when we come right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Alan Briskin. So, Alan, um, we were talking about the power of agreement and people's need and the requirement that people actually have the capacity to speak up or have the space to speak up. And I want to know from your perspective about the power of culture and how culture plays a part in this whole sense of people being able to speak up, getting comfortable to speak up, whether it's supported or nurtured, etc. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, a specific story comes to mind. I'm going to Ireland in a few weeks, and uh, I was uh, talking with a friend whose family roots are in Ireland. And one of the things that I said that I had learned is the generosity of that culture, that it is uh, extraordinary and very real, the way people literally give you the shirt off their back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she was concurring that that, you know, has been, been the case. Mm-hmm. But she also talked about that in the families themselves, there's uh, often a history of betrayal and a great deal of suspicion that because of the history of poverty, there's often expectation that the one out of the group who succeeds should help all the others who have not succeeded. Mm-hmm. And this puts cr- tremendous pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and she captured for me, you know, what we began with in the beginning of our conversation about the two worlds we live in and the different layers that exist in any world. And the individual becomes liberated to the degree that they begin to be able to discern and find, uh, I'll I'll use the word objectivity, in seeing how these different worlds collide in ourselves and in the culture. And that we are the evolutionary spark. Mm -hmm. That to the degree that we are able to bring to awareness these colliding fields and begin to, uh, I think, again, taking our whole conversation and focusing it, to begin to uh, cultivate intentionality, Mm. uh, to begin to navigate the very real generosity and the very real sense of betrayal that can exist simultaneously in a culture, Mm. that we begin to understand culture when we begin to grasp the the simultaneity of these different forces mm-hmm. and that we are the evolutionary spark it is our awareness and how we choose to act in the world that gives not only our own lives meaning but creates meaning in the culture itself mm. you know one has to credit Obama for being a uh, fractal of what I'm describing yes yeah I totally agree with that and I sometimes wonder um, how much can he take because, you know, so much of what he's doing is being attacked. And, um, and of course, he's not perfect, and he's doing things in a much different way than we have experienced our politics in the past. 
and um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Well, he's creating a in the line of how we're talking. He's creating a cultural intervention in that he's saying yesterday about the healthcare debate. Mm-hmm. Um, good, we need a healthy debate. Mm-hmm. He's saying I'm inviting not just the partisan group that are right. with me to ram something through. We need a healthy debate. But we can't debate about things that are not true. We can't right. debate just emotionally the baggage we carry and the fears we have about government mm. without looking uh, more closely at what we're actually talking about. Sure. And so in that sense, there has to be a level of agreement around the principles of how we engage in the collective. You you talk about that in the book, and I, I really wish we had more time to get into some of the details, but we've come to the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. A wonderful ride. Absolutely. I'm so happy you were here today. It was a great, great conversation with you, Alan. If people want to know more and learn about your work and more about the book, how can they find out? Uh, they could go to my website, which is www.alanbriskin, one word, A-L-A-N-B-R-I-S-K-I-N.com, and they can sign up for uh, our mailing list for The Power of Collective Wisdom by going to the www. The Power of Collective Wisdom, one word, dot, dot com. Great. Uh, and the book will be out in uh, late September, early October. Hmm. And I uh, really do, in line with our conversation today, I see it as an expression of a social movement that is occurring, hmm. that we're seeing uh, 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 glimpses of in the work Obama is doing and not just him personally or alone mm-hmm. but what he is trying to sort of orchestrate mm-hmm. and that there are thousands and thousands of people who are doing this at local community levels mm-hmm. and the book is meant to be a resource to them to get the word out that there is a way to make to both act uh, and also take the time to reflect on intention mm-hmm. Wonderful parting words. Helen Briskin, thank you for being with us today. And remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.